My conversation today is with Barbara Majeski. Barbara is a nationally recognized TV personality and is regularly featured on the Today Show, Inside Edition, Good Day New York, and many others. She's a keynote speaker, a podcast host, and founder of the More Life Collective. In 2015, Barbara entered a divorce and was diagnosed with stage three cancer, back to back. During treatment, she vowed that if she beat cancer and got another shot at life, she would live bigger, she would live better and bolder with true purpose, meaning and intent. So Barbara, I've just seen the passion and vibrance that you speak with, and it's so inspiring. So I'm super excited for our conversation today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I, I'm grateful that we have this opportunity. Yeah, me, me too. So I definitely want to get into some of the powerful stories and things you've learned in your life recently. But before we get into that, I would love to go back in time and learn more about the childhood version of Barbara. So what was your life like growing up? So I call it growing up Schwartz. Uh, fun family fact is that I'm a twin. I have younger twin brothers uh, and my mom is a triplet. So multiples do run in our family, uh, but so does a condition known as fragile X, which is a genetically inherited form of neurological impairment, much like Down syndrome. And my, okay, so I'm a twin with Ben and Michael and Steven are twins. Uh, Steven inherited fragile X. For whatever reason, I've just had this kind of like maternal, um, feeling over him. Um, so I, I was, was kind of his caretaker. I felt like actually my younger twin brothers were two baby dolls that uh, my parents brought home for me to play with. Um, so I just kind of played mom from three on thinking that this is like the coolest gift. Anybody can be gifted like a real live baby dolls. So they meant the world for me. And I kind of have an interesting, I had an interesting experience when I was six, um, I was actually giving Michael and Stephen a bath. Now this is their 70s. So just track with me. Okay. Christina, <laughs> just track with me. Yeah. This is what does why a six-year-old is giving three-year-old. I don't know. But they only I remember they only filled up the bath only so far. So that whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm playing patty cake with Michael and I turn around. Stephen's just kind of laying on the side of the bath. He's not submerged underwater and like that. But I realize he's not responding and doesn't play patty cake with me. Anyway, I called my parents into the bathroom and Stephen was having seizures and it rushed him to the hospital and he was gone for like a month and a half. And during that time, I remember I was like, well, when are they bringing home my Stephen? Because Stephen belonged to me. Mm -hmm. Anyways, and uh, finally, after a, um, over a, mo a month later, my <laughs> mother sits Ben and I down and she was like, Stephen's going to come home, but you need to be very patient with him. He's not going to develop like other children. And that's kind of when we knew Stephen was special needs. We didn't find out the genetic component until later on, but um, I, and my mom's like, he'll never be able to speak. Cause he had had some tracheotomy and they just assumed he'd never be able to speak. So my mom's like, listen, he's not going to speak his communicate. You're going to have to learn how to communicate other ways. And I profoundly enough said, I was like, I'll speak for him. I I'll, I, I'll speak for him. Like he doesn't need any, he's got it. Me, I'll take care of him. I'll speak for him. And profoundly enough, that's kind of just been Almost my life's mission is not only to speak for Stephen and advocate on his behalf, but to speak for the most vulnerable members of society, to give a voice to those who can't speak for themselves. Um, so I always find it interesting that I said that at six and now I'm, you know, turning the clock to the five zero pretty soon and I think that that's my calling and my purpose, um, purpose in life for sure. He can speak, by the way. Um, I just tend to speak a little better for him. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Do you feel like you have to speak for him? And like, what was the first time that you, you spoke for him? You know, I think always throughout his life advocating on his behalf, I was always very protective. Anybody got frustrated with him or didn't understand him. I was like, there, nothing gets me more fired up. Like I will blaze into the room if, you know, because Stephen had tantrums and he was difficult and, you know, had his thing and I, nobody was allowed to get frustrated with him. I, I just would run into a tear. So I was always was very protective of him. And more recently, well, not recently, it was like, oh my God, 30, 17 years ago, I took over as Stephen's legal guardian so that I could advocate on. So I was trying to get him. So he, this is crazy. So when special needs children graduate from high school at 21, they fall off this cliff. There's just not enough for them to do. And he was raised during a time where vocational skills weren't really, he was like learning math and science and things that really just weren't applicable. But there just wasn't, it was a different time. So he graduated high school with zero skills and was completely unemployable. Um, so there was nothing for him to do. He would go, my parents would have to drive him. He got a job cleaning trays at the middle school and my parents would drive him there. He'd work for an hour and a half. And then they'd have to go pick him up. So like even my, my mom couldn't even work. She's like, I just have to, because Steven needed something to do. And that was all they could do. So I ended up moving home close to them after I had my first son. And I'm like, this is a dumpster fire. And so I start trying to like, be like, how come, first of all, nobody's picking him up. Like, how come my parents literally have to revolve their entire day around 90 minutes of like caretaking? My mother gets a 90 minute respite. I'm like, what is the, what is going on? So, but I'm trying to move the ball down the field. I can't get anywhere. Cause they're like, and you are a sister. Nobody cares. So my parents had to sign over legal guardianship because I am a, I am relentless. I am relentless. <laughs> and I was like, let's go. As soon as I got his guardianship, I was, uh, I had been, I'd done my due diligence on how to say the right things and do the right things. Anyway, I ended up after several months, this was not an overnight success story, getting him into a, a really successful day program, uh, a bus that would come and pick him up and drop him off. And he has been in, he's had been in this one program until COVID. And now he's in another very similar program. So for 17 years, Stephen's been in a great adult daycare. But that's when I feel like I had to best, like really be the highest expression of myself because without my voice, he, it was just not going to go anywhere. And I'm really proud of that. That was a big deal. And he's really happy. So. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And especially because if you're in a society that is not understanding of that or not geared toward figuring out how we can be successful, regardless of, of who you are, yeah, it's so narrow and it makes it difficult. So it's, it's great that you've been there. Well, let me say this. Uh, we've come so far, Christina, the, there's so much more out there. There's so much more compassion and education. Like we were like the, the shunned family. Like we were the bunch of crazies that had that, you know, that people either felt sorry for us or they were like horrified by us, you know, because we can never really control Stephen's behaviors. So it's where I kind of get my sense of humor is like, you really can't throw me off my mark. Let, you know, we just learned how to roll with the punches. But as a society, we have made great strides in inclusion and compassion. And I am here for it. I think here's where we do fall short. I feel like they are financially 
uh, the most underserved population. My parents said it best. They're like, we're in the forest and we can't see through the trees. Most caretakers that are caretaking for children and adults with special needs are 24 seven. And if they get a 15 minute respite, they just want to sit, They just give them a break, throw them in front of Netflix, like let them just decompress. They can't sit there and advocate and call on Congress and complain. They can't sit on the phone like I did, calling our legislator, calling the, you know, counties, calling, a D, you know, um, DDS, you know, and they, they were like, Barbara, we cannot do this. They were tapped out. So I think the biggest problem we have is they are the most underserved, underheard segment of the population because it's actually going to require not the caretakers and not the immediate family. It requires society uh, in its whole to say who are the most vulnerable members of our society and how can we take better care of them? Uh, because I think a society is ultimately measured by how they take care of the most vulnerable members of the community. So. Let me, I just want to say that. And this is my smoothie. So for all the listeners, I always want to, it's very important to have your apple cider vinegar smoothie. Go to my Instagram. Okay, go ahead. Yes. Continue. And if you don't use a smoothie, then you can put it in the LaCroix with the limoncello and the Mio lemonade. All the things. Whatever, whatever works for you. I, I want to ask too, because I don't have sisters and brothers who have been part of an underserved community. What would you mm -hmm. suggest for somebody like me or anybody who isn't around that to support those communities? Um, you know, I think the universe has an interesting way of guiding you towards purpose. I think it comes to you. I think it comes to you, your purpose, your giving, your living life and helping others comes through your own experience and your own knowingness. I think just being conscious of that, that segment of society is hugely important, important. And even if you just write a check or spend your time at Special Olympics, but honestly, Christina, I do think that we're all gifted with great purpose and we are here to live a life of purpose. The purpose of life is to live a life of purpose. But I do, I have to go back to, I am, I'm so passionate about advocating for the most vulnerable members of society because I know their story. But I imagine everybody has their own connection with servitude in their own way. And you have to go with where you can best serve. Um, and I think in that capacity, there are vulnerable members in all areas. So whether you've been touched by cancer or abuse or poverty or adoption, you know, there's just servitude exists on many planes and the vulnerable population is a, a very broad spectrum. So find your, find your connection in that space. That's a great point. And there's no single person who can ultimately serve every single community and everybody has their own purpose and own, like you said, servitude. And that's one thing that I think is so interesting when you talk to somebody who has like say a doctor or somebody who has a very specific type of, of job where they're directly helping somebody, they'll say, you know, I love doing what I do because I love helping people. And what's interesting is regardless of what your purpose is in life, regardless of what job you have, it is designed to help somebody in some way. And so that's the beauty is like whatever you're doing, if, if you're working construction, if you're a doctor, if you're a teacher, you could, you could name any single legal profession and you are helping somebody. And mm -hmm. it's the only difference between, you know, say for example, a doctor, somebody who says, Oh, I love doing my job because I help people. And 
the difference between that and maybe somebody who's like, say an engineer is, is the directness in which they're helping somebody and who they're helping. So mm-hmm. like, say, for example, if you're an engineer, you'll be helping a community, but you don't directly see that impact, which in some cases, like some people need to be in a job where they directly see that impact, but that impact is happening regardless. And I love your point about we're designed to help different communities. We're designed to help different people and pairing that with what we love, pairing that with other factors that happen. Our experience too, even the negative experiences, you know, I have come to learn that the only emancipation from suffering is to help others. So even in some of the most troubling and difficult experiences, if you can transcend that and recognize that you have gotten to a higher ground, you can also serve from that knowingness, that experience. Just for me, in you know, for me, like example, like going through cancer, I didn't want to talk to anybody who like I, people would be like, oh, my sister's uncle's brother had that cancer or whatever. And I'm like, okay, can I talk to that person? Like it's, it, it's not, it, you want that person that rolled their sleeves up and did the infusion. I, I, I need to talk to those people. I need, and I, they, they know what I'm going through. And it was those people that I was like, oh my God, tell me everything. How did you do? Like, what was it like? And la, 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 la. Um, you know, and it, there's, I, you know, I hope I'm making sense in the fact that, your experience can have great value if you use it to help and serve others. Um, or you can stay in your, you know, suffering and your pain, or you can emancipate yourself from that by knowing that maybe you can help and serve others. So definitely. And in a, a big way that you help and serve others and a big way that a lot of women help and serve others, women who can is being a parent. Oh, yeah. And I guess not even just women, just people in general. So I would imagine the environment as well as, like you said, that some of the experiences you've gone through, whether negative, positive, all of the above have have influenced the way that you raise your children. So could you tell me more about how those impacts or or how those certain, whether it's your environment or certain experiences have changed the way that you've impacted your children? Oh, 100%. Like, I'm so blessed to have gone through everything that the trials and the tribulations that all of us go through, because it did give me context to understand. I don't know, you don't control necessarily what always happens to you, but you do control how you handle it. And your attitude, your effort, your intention, these are in your jurisdiction, everything else is out. So the blessing of cancer is my kids got to see me play a very difficult hand. And I knew they were watching and I was like, all right, I got to play this one because they're going to mirror my, I mean, they're going to be fe- fearful or optimistic or da, da, da. So I became very conscientious of like my attitude. I could control my attitude. And I would, you know, be like, listen, mom's got this. I would walk twice a day, Christina, when I was in chemo twice a day. So people be like, can I bring over a casserole or some food? And I'm like, I don't want a casserole. You can come over and we can go for a walk because I needed company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, probably somebody to hold me up sometime. Um, and so my kids saw that they saw mom's going through, you know, cancer treatments, but she's putting on, you know, she, she's doing the best she can walking, you know, smoothies, all the things. So I just think like understanding that I could only control. And I think people aren't conscious of that, of like, you're messaging to everyone around. And I was like, all right, I got this. Did my kids see me meltdown? Oh, I had a meltdown for sure. But it was 
I, first of all, I think it was well-placed and appropriate, you know, so they got to see that it wasn't easy for me, but I also just, let me, let me just give this story. Cause I think it's important. So I, my oncologist, uh, so my boys were in sixth and fourth grade and my daughter was like four. So she really wasn't aware of what I was going through, but my, obviously my other boys very aware of cancer. And so my oncologist was a skier. And when he told me I had to have six months of chemo, it's like, uh, I can't do that because I have a ski trip. <laughs> and he was like, you have cancer. Like you're going to go through again. I was like, well, I have to ski because that's what I do. I'm like, I'm in a whole nother, like my brain is like, this is such an inconvenience. I'm living. Okay. I am not interested in doing. And how, how recent after was that from the diagnosis? But so my diagnosis in November, I had, uh, chemo from January till June. So my, that, so in the middle, I'm like, I, I ski song and my oncologist is like, you're not funny. I'm like, I am funny. Um, he's like, but listen, I'm a skier. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna schedule your oncology. When, when are you taking your boy skiing? So I gave him a ski. We scheduled my whole oncology around my ski trip. So I'm all excited. I get to take my kids, but I'm pretty sick. But about a 24 hours before I'm supposed to go, I'm like, like, I was, it was honestly, it was this close. I was like, I don't think I can get, I can't do this. The day of I wake up and I'm like, I'm, 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 <clears throat> I got this. So get the kid, get the boys. We go skiing. We have like the best time. Like the first day I can't ski. I'm not stable enough. Day two, I'm, I put on my boots. I got my, mom is in mom is momming and we're uh, so my my husband my, my ex-husband now but my husband at the time was is not a skier he's never a skier skiing was me and my boys and we they would beg like i sat in the middle on the chair left and they sit to the left and right of me like it was our thing mom's out there we're having the best time we're skiing so we fly home and we have a layover in denver and my husband at the time was like you have to i had kept pills and infusions he's like barbie you have to you you're a day late you need to start your pills again and i knew this but i was like in denial that i was in chemo i was like not in it and out of nowhere in the denver airport i start <gasps> sobbing and not just sobbing. We're talking full on snots and heaving like uh, t- uh, 10, like, at, <gasps> and my boys jump out of their seat and they like wrap their arms around me. They start yelling at their father. They're like, Sh- get her back to Aspen. She doesn't, sh- she's like, let's go back to Aspen. She's healthy and Aspen. like, oh, they're, bl- they're confused. You know, that we can just go back to Aspen. We go back to Aspen. I <gasps> pull myself together. I'm like, boys, I, 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 I'm okay. Like I pulled myself together and I was like, listen, it's not about Aspen. I I have to do these and they make me sick and they make me tired and they make me not the mom that I want to be, but it's going to also make me be a mom for many, many years to come. So what I share Christina is I was very real with my kids through it, but I was also very conscientious of being very positive. So I don't think it was, a. I thought it was the right, like the universe needed my kids to see that this was not a cakewalk and mom was fighting for her life kind of thing. Um, but it was also couched with like, I am, I'm doing all the things to make sure that I survive this. And I am so glad my kids got to see that. And there's just some other things like just my boys would like meltdown, but they, 
they saw how I, I transversed a very difficult situation. And again, uh, it's not what happens to you. I could never change my diagnosis. I could only hand only handle how I handled it, but it was very much like walking, juicing, skiing, fresh air, you know, all the things. And, you know, then a little infusion, a little, a little, a little sprinkle of a meltdown, sprinkle a meltdown in there, but not shouldn't be the whole damn cake. Enough to make them see the the reality of it, because a lot of times if people, you know, if you go through something like that and don't show any of the vulnerability, you know, a lot of times yeah. people see, see through that. Well, they have a delusional expectation. And so Christina, you're spot on. It is not advantageous in my book, and I'm no expert in anything, but you, you do people a disservice if you're disingenuous about an experience. Like if I just would have been like, oh, this is not, this is easy. I think had if they get diagnosed with cancer or their spouse or their friends, they're, uh, they're not going to really understand that it was, I think that that transparency and that authenticity and that positivity um, I think gave them some scaffolding to deal with adversity down there, down the line. So that's a great point. And like to what you were saying, if they were to get that and then they were to feel like, oh, well, you know, mom went through this and it was a piece of cake for her. So I should feel guilty for not feeling those emotions or or for feeling those emotions. Yeah. Like, oh my God. My mom never, you know, never had a hot pro- Like what's my problem, you know? And you're, it's like, it's a disconnect and you don't want that. I, I'm grateful that happened. It wasn't an easy, it was a big old meltdown, big, ugly cry. But I think it did give them context to the situation was not easy. I was making it look a little, you know, it's not like they had to, they didn't go to the infusion center, you know, they didn't watch me throw up, you know, so that's me and my parenting. It's not perfect, but so far so good. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I, I can't be perfect. I would imagine I'm not a parent, but <laughs> I would imagine that it's never like that. And you, so that happened in 2015, correct? 26, I diagnosed 2015, 2016 infusions or, okay. know, or whatever. Gotcha. So it sounds like there was a big mind transformation that happened from before that to, to now. Yeah. And I can just see it in, in some of your stories. So could you share more about that transformation? Like the, the 2010 Barbara will say compared to the 2023 version of Barbara that I'm talking to right now, could you share a little bit more about that mental transformation? A hundred percent. So, you know, I was, I had 12 rounds of chemo and around eight or nine, I was like, Ooh, this is a little harder than I thought it would be. I was struggling and I just had this, like I took inventory of all the things I was really proud of, but also realized I had still so much left undone. So many things that I was like, I never even bothered to try or pursue. And I had this revelation that it was, you know, I, or I had this clarity that it was never, nobody was stopping me in the pursuit. I talked myself out of everything. Like I was never tall enough. I wasn't short enough. I wasn't smart enough. I was overqualified. I was underqualified. I mean, everything I wanted to do, I would not everything, but a lot of things that I really wanted to do, which was including, including television, just didn't think I was, I just talked myself out of it. And I made a vow that if I ever got, if I got through this, I would never be that person again. I would never let fear and self-doubt or the weight of other people's opinions get in my way. And so I got to the other side of cancer and I'm like, I really want to go on TV. I want to, I never, even, I want to go on TV. What's funny, Christina is in that moment, I was like, I, you know, I've never done it. I'm going to have to start, I'm going to have to be a coffee runner 
I'm from Jersey. I have to be a coffee runner. Um, so I'm going through this in my head. And then I'm like, oh, and if I do get on TV, I'm going to have to like be reporting from some dumpster fire in the bowels of New Jersey. And as I'm going through this process of like what I'll have to do to break into television, which is start at zero, I had this moment. I was like, oh my God, what are people, what are people going to say? And all of a sudden I heard myself say, say that. And I was like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. New Barbara, 2017 Barbara, no longer cares. No, I no because I, I have this understanding of like, I have no authority over the way people perceive me. I have no control over that. And if I have no control over that, then I don't care. You, Your judgment is a reflection of you, not of me. And it's not going to affect me because all of a sudden I had this breakthrough of like, I, I'm not going to let that kind of stuff. I would rather be making a tire. I'd rather make an ass out of myself on TV than not pursue it. I would rather fail in the pursuit. That's what I decided. I'd rather fail in the pursuit than let these dumb voices derail me. You kind of have to have these moments of clarity of like, what a waste of a cup. What a, what a waste of brain space. I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've heard myself say, and I'm not going to let myself say it anymore. And I can't wait to report from the bowels of New Jersey on a dumpster fire. And it was transport. And I was like, you know what? So what if I have to run coffee for a 25 year old producer? I'm still at NBC. I didn't have to, but at the end of the day, I was willing to, because I no longer cared and no longer cared. I was like, I don't care. I'd rather fail trying than fail to try kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and I think what's frustrating for a lot of people is that logically we know that like, oh, I know that I should just do what I want to do because nobody cares. Like you can look at however many research studies or things that tell us that people don't care about you as much as they think they do in the most positive way. Like people don't care, you know, what you end up doing with your life. And I take that as a very positive thing, but the ability to actually understand that, I think for some people takes a certain life experience. It takes time. It takes, you know, things to actually, sometimes you just need to be broken. Like I just needed to go break down and have cancer. Like I try to help people like, don't wait till you're confronted with your own mortality before you address the conversation that you have with yourself, because it's either supporting your dreams or it's sabotaging your dreams. I just took it too far as, but the, here's my thing too, is people are going to, are going to judge you, Christina, give them something to judge them about. It's you have no authority over it. And it is, it's, it, it's on them, not of you. And when you just let it go, it's so liberating and it's so funny, you know, because yeah, like the haters are going to hate. I'm like, but I'm, I'm still kind of living my best life. <laughs> like, even if sometimes it's like a big, you know, hot dumpster fire, I'm still out here and it's a lot more fun living at your higher expression of you, like you're really, you're, you're authentic. You is so much better. And people connect with your, the authentic you people like authentic people. They can't help it. They're like, you know what? I don't always agree with you, but you're kind of fun to be around because I know what I'm going to get. You're like a McDonald's milkshake. Like I know what I'm going to get, you know? If Yeah if the ice cream stream works, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, it makes so much sense. Cause it's like, would you rather be judged and be miserable or 
be judged and do what you love to do. It's like, you're going to be, you're going to be judged either way. And if they're not judging you, it's because you're sitting on the couch doing nothing, watching life pass you by, get out there, go make an ass out of yourself. And then you have much better stories. I mean, that's the fun part is like, at the end of the day, I make an ass out of myself, I don't know, 72 to a hundred times a day. And then I have a lot of good stories and whatever, like, I mean, listen, if I ever pass, which I eventually will, people will have like the funeral have to be for eight days because there's going to be 80,000 stories of me making an ass out of myself that made us all laugh, but gave us all like the courage to go make an ass out of ourselves. So I don't know. Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) So would you say going back to, you know, you said that you finally, you, you had to be broken to be able to really actually take action and live the way that you maybe even knew that you were going to live before. Would you say that catalyst was the diagnosis? I think a little bit of that and a little bit of my marriage falling apart. Um, I think that broken heart uh, and like suffering, just experiencing that um, did lead me to higher ground. You know, sometimes you feel like things are actually falling apart, but what you don't know is that this is the world coming together for you. Like the universe conspiring in your favor. It's just something you don't, can't always see until you're on the other side of it. Um, but I, I do believe, um, in the concept of like diamonds are built under pressure and stress. And I I do believe I needed to kind of go through a little suffering and to, to have clarity of like what I really wanted and what really made me happy and brought me joy and fulfillment. So I think a catalyst, it was that it was this ugly marriage of cancer and divorce, um, that allowed me the clarity of like being more intentional with how I saw myself living the rest of my life. Um, and it was, it's come together really divine for me. I'm definitely a better person. I am so less judgmental. I'm so less, um, I, I so less care about making other people like I care about making people happy, but I'm no longer, I'm no longer hold myself like responsible for everybody else's happiness, you know? And I hold myself responsible for my own happiness. So in a lot of things, that is really more of, I think that was the inflection point is this, my marriage fa- falling apart and then being diagnosed with cancer kind of just led me to a higher, who knew, <laughs> who knew? Like the biggest blessing was on marriage and being, you know, and that was a whole, that's a whole book. Are you going to write a book about it? I someday I say it all the time. Like I got to write a book on growing up Schwartz. I got to write a book on like that. And then I get overwhelmed and I go to the gym. (laughs) (laughs) I go do a yoga class. Anyway, it'll, they'll, they'll be books for sure. Yeah. And even if they aren't published too, I think there's so much power in writing a book and and putting it out there, whether it's for your kids, whether it's for, you know, people you want to share or whether you, you want to share with the world. I think anybody would get value from that. Yeah, no, congratulations on your book. That is, uh, listen, I can do it. I can do it. I just have not done it. I can do it. Anybody can do it. (laughs) No, that's impressive. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Um, One thing you said that reminded me of this quote that my friend always says. So I don't know if you're familiar with, if you know, Jay Chase, but he was on an episode of my podcast and he always says, we are forced to experience life forward, but we can only understand it backward. So I think it's, it's so true. Like in hindsight, you can always say, oh, things worked out for me. You can take apart the pieces and realize why that was put into your life. But regardless of, of that, we're always forced to experience life forward. And we can't change the fact that we can't see why until things certain, certain things happen. 
Yeah. I mean, that is so well said and so true. Um, because I remember going through something particularly difficult during COVID. Um, my son has been since diagnosed with epilepsy and he was having seizures out of nowhere. And I had to stop doing TV because the studios were shut down. It was like, a, and I'm going through a divorce. Let me lay it out for you. I'm still in a divorce process. I'm in forced, um, what do you call it? Like where you have to stay in the house, like forced being, that's the question. Remember we were all like had to. Oh, quarantine? Yeah, we had to hunker. Yeah, quarantine. Hunker in the bunker with my my ex, my future to be ex-husband because we hadn't been divorced yet. We just stay in, oh, yeah. in the same room. Mind you, he has a house down the street with his new fiance and new baby. And I am, it's a, it was so bad. So I'm living with this man who clearly cannot wait to divorce me. I have a son at 16 randomly having seizures. I can no longer do television because we are all banned from the studio. So I'm doing television from home. I am under, my three kids are being homeschooled on the videos. And I have this whole thing going like, if what if Max has a, it's a mess, it's a mess, a mess. And I finally said to my producer, I'm like, I can't do television right now because, and actually I was in this sweater. I did a Valentine's day segment and Max had had a seizure and I had to go on TV the next day. And I was like, I cannot, I cannot believe I'm doing TV in the middle of a crisis. So call my producer. I'm like, listen, I need, I can't, I just cannot do this right now. I just, I, I'm just going to, I can't. And I was so broken hearted because Christina TV's a, you know, I'm like this newbie in her forties trying to launch a career. And next thing you know, I got to put it on hold my dream career to deal with this. And I read this quote by Gabby Bernstein. And it was like, when you think you can't surrender, surrender some more. And I was like, all right. Like, and the surrender was the universe is conspiring in your favor. The universe has your back. Surrender to that knowingness and that belief. And I was like, all right. I'm like, all right, so the universe is conspiring in my favor. I was meant to live a charmed life. This is like me just coaching me. That afternoon, I downloaded an app called Clubhouse. And Clubhouse has been one of the most powerful, transformative social media uh, platforms I, for me that I've, I've never experienced anything like that. It has moved, it has opened up doors. I've spoken at 10X because I've connected with the Cardones. I've made investments in private aviation. I have made friends like for my lifelong friends. I've had access to real estate conversations that have just empowered me to take, that, that clubhouse has been transformative for me personally and professionally, spiritually, unlike every level. I love it. Um, but I would have never been on that app had I not just been in a moment of like, well, I guess I'm home now. And the universe was guiding me to something that was going to guide, bring me to higher ground. So that's what, that's that story. <laughs> that's super cool. I had no idea that was how you got into into clubhouse that's it wasn't an early adopter like everyone's like oh you were one of the ogs i'm like not really but you can call me that was that in 2021 i ended up i was on there in 2021 because we're still in covid for sure because i was still in this pink i was in this pink sweater for valentine's day segment so it's like all coming back to me i don't know that, yeah. that's the story goodness gracious i would imagine like did you feel because i know one thing you talk about is the motivation inspiration versus discipline did you feel like you had to hold so much discipline in that moment. I think it was a lot of faith of like, you know, again, aligned with like a greater purpose. 
of like, I, I think in, you know, I talk a lot, Christina, about living with intention and having a very clear understanding that clarity of like how I want to live my life and what's important. And some things don't make sense and some things do, but I think just knowing that I'm supposed to, on some higher level, you advocate for the vulnerable members of society. So I felt like you know what? I think it'll all come together as it's supposed to be. I just had to have faith. So it wasn't motivation or inspiration or, you know, action or anything like that. It was a lot of faith in that moment. And then just not balling up in the fetal position and feeling sorry for myself for too long, but like, all right, let me go sit on this clubhouse. I don't know what everyone's talking about it. So let me get on here. So yeah. And we can talk about motivation and stories because I do think it's like a crime against that for this next generation to think that's what's going to get you to where you want to be. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think there's a lot of conflicting theories about, you know, what's important when it comes to achieving your goals or achieving anything in life and getting where you want to go. Cause it's like, there's motivation, there's inspiration, there's discipline, there's, there's habit build. Like I think everything has its place. And one thing I think that's not talked about enough also is, and you could, you could bring in a bunch of things that aren't talked about enough, but a lot of people focus on discipline and motivation. And I think there's a lot to be said there further, but another thing is like momentum as well. When you talk about getting to where you want to go, like I see momentum as being the bridge between the discipline and the habit. And the more you, more you do something, the easier it is. And so I think habits are essentially the momentum and action. I think, especially for people who are starting out, say for example, like in a fitness journey or starting out and trying to like become a better version of themselves. If all I saw was, oh, it only takes discipline for every single second of the day. I think I would be really overwhelmed if, if that was really what it took. But in reality, like it takes a lot of discipline to start, but if you can build up enough discipline to create the habit, you have the momentum to keep going. And don't get me wrong. Like discipline definitely comes in. Like For example, one thing, um, if you're talking about going to the gym, like I need to have the discipline to push myself when I'm in the gym, but I'm going to be honest, I don't have any discipline for waking up in the morning. Like I wake up every morning at like usually 4.30 and go to the gym every day. That part is the habit. The discipline is actually pushing myself when I'm there. But for some people, they're in in a stage right now where the discipline is waking up. The discipline is creating the habit. So I think understanding where you're at in what you need discipline on versus like building the habit. I do feel, I don't think it's discipline to start. I think it's courage. I think it takes a lot more courage than discipline to start anything because anything you don't have never done before comes with a level of anxiety, fear of the unknown. I don't care if it's driving a car. I don't care if it's meeting a new friend. It takes a lot of courage to start anything that you haven't done before. Um, now, to continue doing the things to get you the results that you want takes a level of commitment, takes a level of consistency. And that, I think, is where people get bejangled up is that a word? It is now. It is now, yeah. <laughs> uh, because we are message these things on TV and media and social media, and we've got music playing, like we've got the Rocky music playing, we're running up the stairs, and we're on the Peloton, and we're like sweating, and but we're in the zone. So we have this perception of like, we just need to always be on fire, and we need to David Goggins our life, and we need to beach body, and it is like the reality the the perception of that is not the reality of it. 
the reality is we don't look that good when we go to the gym. We're not all that motivated. Nobody's playing any theme songs, Christina, when you walk in the gym. Christina's here. Can we, like, she's a brick. No, <laughs> no it's not happening. But that's the perception. Like, where's my, where's my theme music, people? It doesn't. It's not like the reality of it is it's a grind. The reality is it's work. And it takes a lot of consistent behaviors that even when you don't want to do it, you do it anyway. So we're, it's very confusing, I think, as a, as a culture and a society of like, why am I not motivated? Where's my inspiration? Where are you? Motivation and inspiration are feelings. And your goals don't care how you feel. So, you know, with that in mind, your goals care that you do the work that you said you were going to do. Your goals care that you show up, you lift the weights, you drink the, the, the smoothies, you go to bed on time, you don't drink too much. Like your goals, if your goals are here, they only care that you do the action for the, the results, the habits. Um, motivation and inspiration are very important because they get you started. They get you curious. Uh, they get you to make the purchases and invest in the things and buy the books and all the things. But it's the consistency and the habits that are going to get you the outcomes. Um, but I think we don't spend enough time saying like, I, you are not going to get theme music. Okay. <laughs> when you show up at the gym. So just show the hell up and let's do the work. Um, so if like me as a, as a coach and a mentor and a leader, I'm, you know, very much driven to talk about the space of, you know what you need to do, but in order doing it is like, that's the giant. So I'm in the do space. Like, okay, you want to get in shape? Come here. I don't, I'm not going to, we're not doing, you, you know what you need to do. Now you got to go do it. So that's, I just wanted to like, give you my thought on that, especially the fact it takes a lot of courage uh, to start anything. It's just it takes courage to show up and it takes discipline to show up when you don't want to. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense and courage. Oh, I love that you, I love that you brought that word in there. Cause that's another thing. It's like when I, when I said that there were so many factors to it that aren't talked about enough, I think courage is a prime example Last year, I committed to so I, I make, started making a yearly bucket list because I was like, I don't want to wait for the rest of my life. And one of the things that I did on there was to do 52 things that scare me. So each week I committed to doing something that scared me or made me somewhat uncomfortable. And I'm not the kind of person to say that, oh, once I started doing this or that, it completely changed my life. But three months in, I could physically notice a difference. And I think it was that, like you said, the courage mixed with action, mixed with consistency, even though it was small things, like I wasn't going skydiving every week. I was, I was choosing things, especially things that like, we always have to do things that scare us, but by creating it, making it to be something that's proactive, it helps us be in control, which I found just helped me so much. And all of a sudden, like I started notice the, noticing that the things that I used to get nervous about I would get excited about. So like something like, like this conversation right now, if I were to have this with you two years ago, I'd be like shaking in my boots, just any of these conversations. And now I'm able, you know how psychologically or physiologically nervousness is the same as excitement. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew that, like, I completely knew that. And so I would always be like, you know, I'll, I'll tell myself like, and in a moment that I'd be nervous for something I'm like, Oh, I just have to tell myself that I'm excited. And yes, like there's a placebo. And I think there's a lot of value and power in your word and what you tell yourself. Like, but I never felt, I never could really have enough thoughts or words to really feel that excitement. But once I started doing this, which 
you know, putting in the action and consistency to get familiar with doing things that I'm normally uncomfortable with, I could actually feel it. So I proved to myself that nervousness and excitement are indeed the same thing, but I needed to make that connection and take action on it and make it consistent to be able to actually see that. So that's another really powerful thing. And it's like, Mm -hmm. gosh, I just, I learned, I learned so much through, through that process. Yeah. Yeah. Courage is contagious and it's definitely, it'll get, it'll get you, get you there. It'll get you in the, in the door and the more risks and more comfortable you get with, you know, putting yourself out there and learning some things are not a match and some things are, but they didn't kill you. You're like, all right, what do I have to lose? Like they just DM, they just emailed me about the today show and they asked me to do some segment. And I'm like, I have no idea about this. And I wrote back, I was like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) I'm like, how much time do you have to prepare for that? I don't know. I don't even know what, like, they, it's just a topic. I won't t- share what it is. Cause I'm like, oh, I got to go do my due diligence on this one, but should be fun. They eight weeks. So that'll be fine. Okay. So it's not like, a, oh, you have to do this tomorrow thing. I've had that too. Oh, um, really? But that's another story. So yeah. One more thing before you go. So we just talked about action and consistency a little bit. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my episodes, I put the challenge. So I'd like to open up and just have you share a challenge that you'd like to give people who are listening, whether it's a habit or specific action to help them actually take, like, take that and do something with it. Because I feel super inspired. I am naturally a person who loves to overconsume. I love to read books and do all these things. And afterwards, I feel super excited and empowered. But if I don't have a clear, you know, what's next kind of step, um, a lot of times I'll, I'll leave it and completely forget about it. So that's why I have the challenge at the end. I'd love to open it up for you to share something. Yeah. So on any of my challenge, so I do resets, challenges, and in-person retreats to help people move from information to transformation by taking action. And in any of my challenges or resets, there's there's a non-negotiable. And if you do like a 14 day reset, there's three non-negotiable. They're all action-based because I believe when you couple taking action with concepts and personal development, it fortifies the habits that you want to secure for the results that you want. So if you want to really fortify the habits, you've got to have the right mindset coupled with the right action. So the three non-negotiables are drinking uh, a gallon of water a day, this for 14 straight days, writing for 14 straight days and working out every day for 14 days. So I challenge you to pick one of those three. This is my, 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 I'm very big on walking because I think I don't think people put enough credit on it. It's actually one of, it's great for mental health, physical health, emotional health, digestive health. It's like, why are people not just going for a damn walk after their meals? Um, I challenge your audience to pick one for 14 days. So that's my challenge that I set out. I'm really passionate about my three W's. So Thank you, Christina. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And one one last thing too, where can, where would you like people to find you if they can? I know they can Google your name and find you just easy, but. Yeah, they can. But also I have just established the More Life Collective, uh, which is a community built for the community, but will ultimately be built by the community as it starts to build a library of resets and challenges. And it's for anybody that is ready to take action in their life, ready to optimize their mind, body, or their spirit. So look for the More Life Collective at themorelifecollective.com or go to Barbara Majeski on Instagram. You can find everything there or Google me and then don't get lost in the sauce of all the crazy stuff I've done. (laughs) Will do. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. All right. Have a great day. I'll catch up with you soon.